Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block. And today, joining us on the other side of the mic is our guest, Robert Leshner, founder of Compound Labs, the development team behind the Compound Protocol. Today, we're going to be diving into a lot of the recent activity we've been seeing in the at the intersection of the crypto market and and regulation. It's very thorny. But I also want to touch on some of the mechanisms behind DeFi governance. And so for those purposes, I think we have a great guest. But before we dive in, I want to take a moment to thank our sponsors. What's next for digital currency after a brutal 2022? While the core promise of crypto hasn't changed, digital currency is still forming the base layer for a new global commerce infrastructure. From merchants at the point of sale to corporations that want to pay suppliers and even employees more efficiently. Circle has always seen itself as a connector of the traditional world and the new world of digital currency. It's like building houses. What's the foundation and can you get the foundation right? Throughout Q1, I'm happy to host leaders from Circle here on The Scoop to give listeners the chance to hear how one of crypto's most prominent builders is paving the way for digital currency utility. Visit circle.com scoop for more information. Have you ever wanted to use DeFi without being seen? Railgun is a leading DeFi privacy solution on Ethereum. It's also a leading privacy solution operating across Binance Smart Chain, Arbitrum, and Polygon 2. And yes, that includes DEX trading. DeFi and privacy together at last. Visit railgun.org to find out more. This episode is also brought to you by Flare, an EVM-based layer one blockchain with secure, decentralized access to information from other chains and the internet. Flare's native interoperability protocols provide developers with a variety of high-integrity price and event data, including detailed transaction proofs from other chains and information from Web2 APIs. Build better and connect everything at flare.network. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblock.co slash terms dash service. Once again, I want to thank Robert Leshner for coming on the show. Rob, how have you been? It's been, it's been way too long. I know. Um, excited to be back on the show and catch up. It's been uh, a couple years boiled into the space of a couple months. I know, and you know, we're—I don't know about you, but the hair is getting grayer. Yeah, you're I'm looking fine. a little grayer. It hasn't really hit me yet, but you know, give it another—you know—crypto cycle, I'll be like fully—you know—silver. You've got better genes than I do. Um, so let's just talk about some of the recent events at a high level, right? Um, I kind of tweeted today that the SEC um, seems to be on some sort of a warpath. Doesn't look like anyone's really um, immune. I mean, players that you thought were sort of the, you know, the centralized regulated players like Paxos is a firm that has oversight by NYDFS. Um, It just seems like they're really, they're coming after the space in a sense. And, um, I don't know. I'm hearing things about firms, you know, having to set up banking relationships offshore or thinking about moving offshore altogether. Um, At a high level, what's your sort of temperature check? And is is this a is this a sort of 
crackdown on centralized crypto players, decentralized crypto players, a mix of both. What's the high level temperature check from your perspective? Yeah, so I don't have any special insight or access into, you know, Kraken or Paxos or any of the names that have recently, you know, been in the headlines. So I can only give my opinion as, you know, a total outsider. But, you know, here's my read of the situation. Um, this does look like there's a multi-agency coordinated effort to target for, you know, in some sense, elimination certain products in the industry. Um, you know, Kraken staking product being the first the BUSD stablecoin being the next one, where it's not just a single agency operating, you know, on its own. It's multiple agencies coordinating in some fashion. With Kraken, you know, simultaneously the SEC and the IRS. With Paxos, it's the NYDFS and the SEC. You know, this this is not you know shoot from the hip regulation. This is a planned set of product takedowns. And what's interesting is that both of these are significantly different in nature than a lot of prior actions. Um, and the arguments being made by the SEC in particular are really interesting when it comes to both, you know, Kraken and Paxos. In both of them, I think they're opening up in a lot of ways a new front in the war against crypto. Um, the argument that they're making in both cases is that Kraken and Paxos are not following investor protection guidelines. Namely, there are risks that are not being disclosed. And What's interesting about this is this is a you know a somewhat valid argument in that mm. genuinely people don't actually know what's happening under the hood at Kraken or yeah. where their assets are going and how it works. They genuinely don't actually know. You take Kraken at their word, just like you know, and this is I think one of the reasons why this has become the new argument or will be the new argument. This is the problem at you know FTX. It was the problem at Celsius, and it was the problem at you know name all of the dominoes that fell. Didn't actually know what was happening, you know, within their black box. Yeah. So, for instance, like if you stake your assets through Kraken, you don't necessarily know if you're getting the, you know, the perfect amount of coins back that you're supposed to, or whether or not you're being slashed more than you ought to. It almost reminds me of sort of, you know, the PFOF reports that Robinhood has to release on equities trading. There's no sort of visibility into how they're exactly managing those coins uh, for which they're meant to stake. Is is that sort of what you're getting at there? It is. You know, at, at the end of the day, you're trusting that business to do it correctly and to give you the right amount of returns. And, you know, I think this is a somewhat sound argument. And this is one of the reasons why I think it's like scary for the industry in particular is that, you know, there has been a lot of CFI activity where you don't know what they're actually doing with your assets. And, you know, the SEC's argument is that makes it a security that is being offered without investor protections. So we're going to see how it plays out. You know, Kraken settled. I don't know what's going to happen with Paxos. Um, but, you know, I think this is going to be the new line of attack against the industry. So what does that mean, you think, for these underlying protocols? Um, do you think that this will translate into them cracking down on staking in general? Could I still participate in networks through decentralized mechanisms without hindrance from U.S. government um, forces or regulators? Yeah, this is purely speculation and hypothetical, but I think that's correct. I think, you know, the result of this message and line of attack is that if you're staking on your own, you know exactly what you're getting. You're performing the actions and service yourself. There's really, 
you know, no imbalance of information, which is necessary to protect investors. So I don't think they're targeting staking directly. I think they're targeting a business's doing some stuff, some magic that you don't really know what they're doing and giving you a return. Got it. So do you think that there could be some sort of next level of this wave that impacts, you know, let's say lending protocols or different decentralized um, finance protocols? Because that was the, if you rewind the clock uh, back to when FTX was not bankrupt and Sam Bankman Fried was still a billionaire, this was the, that was the topic du jour from a regulatory perspective. Um, in ensuring that there's some sort of middle ground for DeFi front ends, is is that still to come? Is that still an issue in your view, or is this something that are they just focusing on this? Well, I think the current argument that's being made, which is you know the investors are trusting you and don't know how it works, <laughs> so to speak, therefore they're not quote being protected. The antidote, even more so than ever, I think, is DeFi because DeFi actually achieves you know the things that are there to protect investors which is radical transparency of exactly how it operates there's no mysteries of what's happening underneath the hood you know you don't have to you know question where the returns are coming from or what risks you're taking it's laid out for you in the code so it's radically transparent as opposed to it's opaque and you have to guess and hope that it's working correctly and there's no imbalance of information like everyone has a level playing field when it comes to a DeFi protocol. You know, like the protocol doesn't know more than you. It can't rip you off. Um, the protocol acts autonomously. And so I think more than ever, DeFi is well positioned. And, you know, I hope, but I don't expect that regulators start to appreciate what makes DeFi powerful and special and important in the context of their complaints against these CeFi platforms. Do you think there's a risk that they may be continue down this stablecoin path if if there's a chance that Gensler might view any sort of stablecoin issuer as violating security laws as he sees them i mean that could have pretty damaging ripple effects across uh centralized crypto capital markets and defi capital markets absolutely if there's a argument that usd coin and tether are securities and this winds up being, you know, contested over months and years, you know, if it doesn't go the right way in a lot of ways, I, I think it's an Armageddon scenario for a lot of crypto, you know, right now, most of the on-chain activity, the majority of on-chain activity is stable coins. And for the U S government or U S agency to, you know, start to put a tight leash around stablecoins, I think it jeopardizes a lot of the foundations of DeFi and crypto and what makes these networks exciting in the first place. Then everything goes back to the, the olden days of Yorv. The olden days of Yorv, Bitcoin and people making altcoin spinoffs, you know? It'll be simpler. Gather around the fire. Gather yeah. around the fire, kids. Hear yeah, those caveman people. era. <laughs> hear those old stories. Um, yeah. Any, any closing thoughts on that? I mean, is there a way to, you know, how does compound labs position themselves in this uh, thorny regulatory environment? Is there, I mean, especially as a, you know, sort of foundation, you know, sitting behind a protocol, how do you ensure that you've got everything 
every bow in your quiver to ensure that this doesn't sort of spill into your operations? Well, Compound Labs is a, you know, entirely separate entity from, you know, a piece of computer code that's running on a blockchain. So Compound Labs, you know, currently our focus is on an institutional product called Compound Treasury. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously the changing regulatory you know, environment, you know, makes us, you know, have to evaluate what businesses are going to su- succeed and why. But, you know, our primary focus at Compound Labs is on the Compound Treasury product. Um, and, you know, that product has been trying to serve as a bridge between institutions and crypto, you know, capital markets. Um, exclusively offered to institutions. And so, you know, obviously all of the news over the last couple of weeks, you know, is forcing everyone to evaluate what the future of institutional crypto looks like, um, us included. Yeah. I wonder if if you're seeing a decrease in, in the appetite there. Um, but I feel like one thing that's important to point out is that, you know, even though uh, Robert, you and I both reside in the United States and are American. That this is just a small component of this world, and the activity, especially in Asia right now, is quite um, is getting a, is a bit more robust. I think at least the sentiment is. I don't know about the actual infrastructure per se or development activity. I don't have the figures, but at least from what I'm hearing, the sentiment's a bit more robust, and so. Is this just, I mean, is it is it necessarily Armageddon? I mean, I I do want to maybe push back on that. Or could could you see, you know, new issuers crop up and, you know, I don't know if it's, you know, fully circle or whatever, moving completely offshore. Um, but let's say in this Armageddon situation, um, the U.S. regulars do everything they can to cut off, I guess, these on-ramps, on which is effectively what, what is happening here? Uh, could new jurisdictions sort of step in and fill that gap, or, or it would it would be too big of a blow? Well, there's really promising and optimistic, you know, actions coming from a lot of countries that aren't the U.S. Um, right now, Europe is starting to become much more friendlier towards crypto, and you know, we might you know wake up in a world in a year where crypto is being progressively shut down in the U.S where U.S. residents have less and less access to crypto, and more and more things do start happening offshore, right? Where, you know, whether it's the intended goal of all of this or not, you know, new projects are founded in Europe. You know, founders move to Europe. Investors start investing in Europe. Capital leaves the U.S. And, you know, all of the good stuff is not happening inside the U.S. Um, And we get cut off. And, you know, the U.S. basically makes a conscious decision that, you know, we don't want innovation to occur here. And that's a possibility. It's a possibility that you're not going to be able to use, you know, your favorite stablecoin or your favorite, you know, on and off ramp, you know, in the same way you do today. And I think that's a just strictly worse experience for the U.S. resident and, you know, user than today. Mm. I want to talk about governance a little bit. Um, Obviously, that wormhole drama with... A16Z and just the whole BNB bridging situation with the Uniswap reminded me of a story I stayed up real late into the evening writing back in 2018. I met with a source at the Beekman Hotel in New York, I think, to write about the the schism between 
the purple pill unit of maker do you remember that that was like oh yeah 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 i remember the there was the red pill and the blue pill and the purple pill and like maker dow was like fracturing and it was a whole you know there's a whole yeah but it kind of speaks to how like every company has their politics and companies have politics between or you know issues between board and 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 the executive team and the management team has issues with the actual you know, employees, or sometimes there's a, the users are upset because of decisions being made by management. And it's like, you still see that in crypto with DAOs and and in DeFi. And you kind of saw like the power levels being pulled by different groups um, as it pertains to BNB, uh, the BNB chain decision with Uniswap. When you think about sort of the role of people like you, obviously you were one of the bigger circles in that uh, chart that was spreading around Twitter. Um, When you think about the role of sort of these, you know, what we call protocol politicians or the investors, the VCs, is there a way that, I mean, what, what do you think the state of that is? Is it, is it as refined as it can be? Well, it's certainly not as refined as it can be. I mean, we're basically in year four at best, <laughs> depending on how you count, of on-chain governance. In a lot of ways, you could say we're in year you know thirteen because of Bitcoin, mm-hmm. uh, depending on how you view you know forks and its relation to governance. But on-chain governance at its heart is really, really new. And no, it's not final. And no, it's not perfect. And I don't think it's found the most efficient form factor yet. Um, so. My, my short answer is it's not perfect and it's not done and it still needs to evolve and change considerably to get to something that I think is, you know, at the end of the day, faster moving and more efficient and safer. Because right now, you know, on-chain governance, governance whether it's Maker or Uniswap or, you know, wherever, it's not that fast. It's not that efficient. There's a lot of waste and it's not that safe. Um, and so... Clearly, there's a superior end state, and I think there needs to be a lot more experimentation in governance structures. But I think these early experiments are like really powerful and are going to be in the history books that lead to you know, the end state on-chain governance systems. What do you think can be done to make it faster and more efficient? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, one of the th- trends that we're seeing emerging is the role of specialists. Um, whether it's like MakerDAO with like core units or whether it's, you know, professional services firms that, you know, work directly for, you know, a DAO, we're starting to see the rise of specialists. And I actually think this is one of the better trends where you have firms that are, or units or groups that are able to say, hey, we're going to run this one component of it. We don't have to have every single token holder vote on every single decision. We can have, you know, this one specialty group that's really smart at risk management or really smart Mm. at treasury management or really smart at code security or really smart at business development, take responsibility for this on behalf of all of the different, you know, participants in the protocol. And in some way, it's almost like reinventing the wheel and going back to the way corporations work. But even with corporations, there's constant debate about like organizational structure and like what drives good results. But I think like, protocols and DAOs are starting to like 
rearrange themselves into being like groups of specialized actors performing very clear functions. So no different than, you know, Coinbase probably has an investment committee for M&A and other deal-making activity. You'll see yeah, they have 20 well. departments within the company, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Um, what about in terms of um, what you're seeing out there in decentralized lending itself? Um, do you Have you noticed in the wake of the capital market meltdown of 2022, some institutions may be feeling more comfortable uh, lending on something that's, or lending through something that's not as opaque, that's not necessarily a black box. Yes. It's not run by someone named Sue or, or, um, you know, where the counterparty is always going to be Sue or Kyle. (laughs) Right. I I think people are, you know, have learned their lesson that they don't want their money going to the same Sue and Kyle every time. Um, so on the one hand, I think there's a lot more receptiveness towards, you know, transparent on-chain, you know, the source code and how it works and who the borrowers are, are available in real time 24-7. I think there's a much more willingness to engage in that. The problem is, and this is like the massive headwind, right? Mm. The massive headwind is that rates have gone way up and are now above DeFi rates. So the reason why I think there's not as much activity as before is that interest rates in DeFi are now below that in DriveFi, which is shocking, right? Which is like, it violates so many rules and expectations or like laws of financial physics that like people thought, but you earn less using, you know, Maker or Ave or Compound or LPing than you do, you know, putting your money into T-bills. And mm-hmm. I think that is appending a lot of activity and the ramifications aren't known yet. And what underpins the, that headwind? Is it, is it more about macro? Is it more about something to do with the, the microstructure of, of decentralized finance lending? Well, I think it, it is a macro thing, but I think it comes down to, at the end of the day, supply and demand. I think the last couple years have been one in which there's been this growth of stable coins. And the total dollar value of stablecoins will be going up every single year. And that's because stablecoins are probably the crypto tool with the most product market fit, period, full stop. People love stablecoins because they're incredibly useful. You can basically send money anywhere in the world, basically instantly and basically for free. And it's programmable money. You can basically put it into any set of you know automated steps and systems that you want, right? It's just vastly superior to the way people are used to interacting with money. Stablecoins are the highest product market fit thing in the history of crypto, in my opinion. And because of that, the supply of them has gone up. You know, last I looked, it was like $125 billion of stablecoins. And people don't want to bring that money back into, you know, fiat or back into bank accounts because like they want it in crypto. And so the supply has gone way up, but the demand to borrow stablecoins is not matched the supply growth. And so there's just this massive imbalance between the availability of stablecoins and the amount of desired borrowing of stablecoins at this point. And the growth of stablecoins is just completely dwarfed borrowing demand. So interest rates are low. Um, they've been, in essence, going down over time and people are willing to earn, you know, 1% or 1.5% on stablecoins, knowing that they can earn 4.5% on T-bills. 
it's interesting because last time we spoke, we we talked about the the convergence of traditional markets and um, and DeFi, and we were we were examining um, those natural risk premiums that exist in DeFi, tied mostly to, I guess the the technical risks that underpins DeFi relative to legacy finance. Do you think that those risks are just not being as as much factored in? It's a great question. I think for you know blue chip protocols, you know the technical risks are relatively known once something has been operating for a long enough period of time and it's thoroughly audited. People perceive the risk to be relatively low. Um, but at this point, there's a, a negative risk premium <laughs> to the risk-free rate, mm. which is the crazy part, right? And it's because people don't actually want to take their money out of crypto, bring it back to fiat and go invest it in T-bills or, you know, German bonds or Japanese bonds or literally anything else. And so it's really just because of friction <laughs> mm. that money hasn't left the system. And or, la- or laziness. <laughs> laziness, right. There's a lot of reasons, right? They want it, you know, one second away from being able to buy Bitcoin or Ether or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. you know, as opposed to like, you know, ACH transfers take like two days sometimes or wires, you know, it's just are super cumbersome. And so there's a negative risk premium. People shouldn't have as much money in stable coins as they do. Mm. And so you know, you would expect all that money to flow back out into the fiat system, and it just hasn't. The core promise of crypto hasn't changed. Stable coins can bring faster payments at internet scale. From merchants at the point of sale to corporations that want to pay suppliers or even employees more efficiently. Circle has always seen itself as a connector of the traditional world and the new world of digital currency. USDC is more than just a stable coin. USDC is also an open source platform. When our transactions are actually final and you can't change them anymore, that's another great quality property of cash because when you switch his hand, it's fine. Right? Can you digitize all those good quality properties and bring that in a digital form? USDC by Circle is at the forefront of this innovation. And that's why The Scoop is partnering with the folks at Circle to tell you guys why and how our industry is moving. A lot of us who have built USDC, myself included and Jeremy included, we are technologists. So we approach this problem from a technology point of view. Visit circle.com scoop for more information. Have you ever wanted to use DeFi without being seen? Railgun is a leading DeFi privacy solution on Ethereum. And it's also a leading privacy solution operating across Binance Smart Chain, Arbitrum, and Polygon too. Shield your funds and use them privately on your favorite DeFi apps. Railgun's cutting-edge zero-knowledge system encrypts your data from public view. And yes, that includes DEX trading. DeFi and privacy together at last. Visit railgun.org to find out more. This episode is also brought to you by Flare, an EVM-based layer one blockchain with secure access to information from other chains and the internet. Flare State Connector acquires detailed transaction data from blockchains and information from Web2 APIs in a decentralized way, so it can be used securely, scalably, and trustlessly in applications running on the network. Paired with the Flare Time Series Oracle for decentralized price and time series data, Flare delivers a developer 
developer-focused blockchain with secure native access to more off-chain data than ever before. Build better and connect everything at Flare.network. I mean, like, what what about the people in, in your circles? Like, I don't hear about many people thinking about how they can park a chunk of their you know, what they've earned or, you know, uh, in other, in other words, like, you know, colleagues or folks I speak to, it's, it's all about how much they have in stable coins. Maybe they're thinking about buying property, but, um, there's very little talk about a more myriad of assets, um, to diversify. What, what, but why do you think that is, is it just, is it just a crypto thing? Is it, what, what, what underpins that sort of lack of desire to diversify among crypto people? <laughs> That's a great question. I mean, you know, I think the people that figure it, that out are, you know, probably <laughs> traders and, you know, speculators ever. But, you know, I, I, I think there's probably a tendency within crypto to think in like extremes, right? Where you're in an asset class because you think that it has the highest return potential. And people I think are, you know, I'm guessing here, but people are in a frame of mind where it's either like, I'm long, you know, crypto, Bitcoin and Ether and, you know, tokens. Or I'm not. And when I'm not, mm. I want to be able to go back in relatively quickly. And they're just shifting back and forth between like, you know, zero and exposure. Mm. Yeah. And billions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, TradFi does offer higher interest rates right now than DeFi does. Mm -hmm. What do you think are some of the existential threats facing DeFi right now? You know, I think the biggest existential threats are the biggest opportunities. So I think the biggest existential threats are that stable coins, which are really the lifeblood of most of crypto, yeah. get, you know, ring-fenced or subdued or, you know, put in hostile conditions and, like, stable coins are less usable. Um, I think that's by far the biggest risk. I also think that DeFi looks pretty good in comparison to... CFI more and more every single month, every single year, when the arguments against all of the things happening in crypto generally are CFI problems, where it's like someone took too much risk and did something stupid, or they lied to you, or they could do something stupid or lie to you, and we don't even know, so we have to protect you from that risk, <laughs> right? All of the CFI arguments really are the opposite of the DeFi arguments. The DeFi arguments are, you know, there could be a bug in it fundamentally, and this tool is unsound from a technical perspective and it could just implode, right? And take everyone's money with it. It could get hacked by, you know, any black hat out there. Black hats have yeah. hacked half of DeFi at this point, right? That's the biggest risk in DeFi. The biggest risk in CeFi is someone could, you know, screw you over. And so yeah. I think DeFi looks better continuously. Um, even as things look worse and worse and worse in the CeFi world, I think that does create a little bit of a tailwind for people who understand and appreciate why DeFi exists and what it's meant to do. It is just easier. Can I tell you about my crazy? I mean, I've been, I've been trying to send a wire to this one guy and I got his, like, I put his name instead of his company and then the bank sent it, but it was pending for like six days. Then they sent it back. It's another it charge a fee for that. Then they charge you like, you know, it's 50 bucks both ways, yeah. you know, and it's like, I, 
I understand that like, you know, <laughs> these protocols get hacked a lot and it's hundreds of millions of dollars in some instances, but on a micro level, like it is just so easy to send USDC from one wallet to another. It's just, just too easy. Um, but, but, but the technical risk is real. And I think maybe we can unpack just a layer deeper, like what technically needs to be done? Do you have a sense of that? You know, bridging, I mean, last time we talked about just how complicated bridging is and how hard it is to get right to have interoperability, but is, is there anything specifically like type of tooling that needs to be, um, you know, enhanced? What's, what's missing there? So this is not a popular opinion. Um, but you know, I personally believe that the on-chain systems need to get simpler, not more complex. There's generally a trend towards building more and more complex products with more bells and whistles and more moving parts and more code and more surface area of risk and just more complexity in general. And, you know, call this like a super old school, you know, <laughs> DeFi perspective that like most people don't even talk about anymore. But I believe that the best systems for the long term are really simple, composable building blocks. Mm. where you build something, it does one thing really simply, and that's it. It doesn't have a lot of bells and whistles. It doesn't have a lot of features. It's like one thing as a feature. And people can then combine multiple battle-tested, highly audited, highly efficient, you know, composable Legos <laughs> in new ways. But each piece of the system is highly resilient, battle-tested, you know, open source and composable. And what you do with those like extremely hardened Legos, you know, is up to you. But like the Legos need to be small and hard as hell. Mm -hmm. And that's the safest system. And, you know, there's a trend to build bigger and more complex systems and vertically integrate and like offer a product in crypto that does everything. Right. And I think that's where, you know, folks start to run into issues and risk. And I don't know, like, I, I think, over time, you know, there should be just a couple super, super good components, you know, really good trading components, really good borrowing components, really good, you know, flash loan components, really good whatever that all just work together and not like trying to build one Frankenstein thing with like a huge surface area of risk. Yeah, like those crazy Legos with the curves and then multiple like. Yeah, with like little sharp pieces to them. You don't want sharp pieces. Yeah, exactly. Um, maybe just thinking about some of the initiatives that at com with compound, um, compound chain, is that something still being evaluated? No, it's not. Unfortunately, um, this was an idea that we wrote a white paper on, I guess probably it was either two years ago or so, um, stood up a test net for compound chain and, you know, we're able to observe the early test net experience and kind of got spooked. Um, from a security perspective, which I think was smart because the number one source of risk over the last two years from a technical perspective, besides just like smart contract bugs, besides, you know, market manipulation attacks like Avi did mm -hmm. is like complex bridge risk. And for anyone who's not familiar with what Compound Chain is trying to achieve, I'll, I'll walk you through it. So Compound Chain said, you know, simply there's going to be a borrowing marketplace on every single blockchain. Mm-hmm. Instead of having fractured liquidity, where you know there's 
a $1 billion market on Ethereum and a $1 billion market on Avalanche and a $1 billion market on Polygon and a $1 billion market on Optimism. What if you have one cohesive market that you can use from any of those chains where it's a $4 billion market and it doesn't matter which chain you're using it from. You can supply Ether on Ethereum as collateral and borrow AVAX tokens on Avalanche, both of them natively. And this is a really cool <laughs> product yeah. that can one day exist, but to do it, it required building all of these custom bridges. So, you know, it was basically this core, you know, layer one Polkadot chain. It was a substrate based chain with mm -hmm. a bridge built to Ethereum, a bridge built to Polygon, a bridge built to Avalanche, a bridge built to, you know, you name it. And the more bridges you have, the more risk you have. And, you know, thank goodness this didn't launch. I think the end product would have been phenomenally powerful. Um, you know, the ability to say, like, I want to literally supply native Ether as collateral and borrow native EVAX as, you know, as yeah, I choose this a really cool, really powerful result. But I don't think in 2021 we were ready technically. And I don't think any team could really pull this off safely. Yeah. Could it, it wasn't a chain issue um, necessarily. I'm thinking like Cosmos or something. I, I think, you know, the, the choice of underlying technology can make your life easier or harder. And, you know, frankly, I think, you know, Polkadot's a relatively hard ecosystem to build in. I think it's one of the reasons why you, you don't see that many, you know, large Polkadot projects at this point. Um, mm -hmm. But the, the bigger issue was having to build bridges to every chain. You know, a bridge from Ethereum to a substrate chain, a bridge from, mm -hmm. you know, optimism to a substrate chain. And that's really where the the risk was. So unfortunately it won't happen. I, there's still a repo up. If anyone wants to fork it and launch it, you know, you'll need a lot of engineers, but there is a test net for um, Gateway. That was the name of the project um, somewhere out there. You know, if, you so if you're listening, if you're listening and you want to take on the Herculean challenge of revising Gateway. Yes, it's available. It's open source and it's free. What, what about NFTs? Uh, how, how are you guys... Like there's different types of versions of NFT lending and they kind of work. I don't know. They work differently because like NFT prices move slowly or more slowly. Um, what opportunity do you see there? It's a great question. I mean, we've never, you know, thought that much about NFTs. I, as an individual, like buying NFTs, but yeah. you know, I, this goes back to my earlier comment on like, I think, you know, DeFi simple. should be very simple, composable, hardened money Legos. NFTs are a totally different money Lego, um, mm -hmm. so to speak. They behave so differently. They work so differently. They're they're unique. And I don't think that one system should handle NFTs and fungible assets. Mm. I think you know that should be two separate products that stand alone and are the absolute best. And I don't think they should be combined. Mm. That makes sense, just given basically everything you've said, but it's interesting. You do love NFTs. So that's probably maybe I do love NFTs. You can start compound labs, NFTs someday. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, I just love, I mean, to be honest, I'm a crypto punk maxi at heart. <laughs> um, but you know, I love, I love NFTs generally, you know, I have a really nice display case at home where, mm -hmm. you know, I rotate through all these cool NFTs on display and it's really fun, but you know, 
I, I, I've not ever really thought about building a DeFi application around them. So just like, you know, to wrap things up, um, when you think about the next six to 12 months, what are you, what are you most excited about for compound and then for the market more broadly? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, at compounds, you know, I'm excited for compound labs to like rethink and resolve institutional DeFi. I think, you know, the market has changed so dramatically in the last six months for, you know, mm-hmm. ever since the collapse of Terra to the collapse of Celsius and BlockFi and everyone and 3IC and FTX. And just, it's like being able to rethink what do institutions want and how do you provide it to them? And how do you bring them into DeFi is like a really big question that I think we're going to rethink um, and solve, you know, over the next year to two years at Compound Lab. So any specific initiative there that you're excited about? Nothing I can talk about yet. Um, but second, you know, I'm really excited just to watch the growth of the Compound Protocol just as a community member and as a participant. Um, Compound version three launched a few months ago. It's been growing pretty steadily. You know, in a lot of ways, it is like a smaller, hardened, more well-defined, composable money Lego than mm-hmm. Compound version two ever was. It's actually a much simpler code base. It's much smaller. It's more useful. It's just like this tinier, better tool. And I'm really excited to watch that grow. So I've been, you know, really excited to see new markets get deployed and pretty soon I think it's going to start launching another blockchains and, you know, just seeing the growth of, you know, compound the protocol is really cool to watch. Mm-hmm. Some of the other questions I had here, it's funny, uh, we, we kind of touched them without necessarily asking them straight up, but, you know, just thinking about how DAOs have struggled with the burden of, of treasury management amid the bear market decline. I, I think you put it really well that figuring out some way in which there are these different groups that can sort of specialize and figuring these these thorny problems out can come a long way. And then of course, you know, they can also, you know, go hit up our friends at Gauntlet and see if they can help them too. Yeah. Well what I expect is like in like twenty years, like just I just take like this super long view. Mm-hmm. You know, DAOs aren't going to try to manage their own treasury. That's crazy. Like, mm-hmm. they're not, a DAO's obviously <laughs> going to give, you know, their treasury to BlackRock to manage or, you know, some mm-hmm. other specialist, some like the BlackRock of crypto, whoever that is in 20 years, you know, they're not going to be like, you know, oh, none of us are trained finance professionals. Let's just YOLO into some tokens. <laughs> <laughs> it's well, well put. Um, well, Rob, thanks so much for taking the time to join the show. Appreciate you chatting with us. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, always great. And hopefully I'll see you soon in person. Once again, we've been joined by our guest, Robert Leshner, founder of Compound Labs. For our guests who don't know where to find you, I imagine it wouldn't be that many. Where can we follow you on Twitter? Oh, I love to tweet. But I actually recently marked my Twitter private because the algorithm changed. And you Oh, that's right. Right. You stopped getting your tweets seen if you were a public account for some reason. So to get engagement back, everyone transferred their account to a private status so that their friends would actually see their tweets. So you can follow me at rleshner. Um, I will you know, approve the follower requests and stuff, but my account's private now. And Elon, if you're listening, got to get on that. Fix that bug, man. <laughs> we can all go back to public accounts. Thanks again for being on the show. Thanks, Frank. The Scoop will be back for you again with another great guest. Have an awesome day.